Greetings and welcome to Agents of Change. I'm Dr. John and I'm the fitness psychologist. I've taken the show on the road this week and I'm coming at you from Salt Lake City, Utah. I've got the best show ever today. Uh, but first, if you're new to the show and you find something that resonates with you and adds value, please go to iTunes, Spotify, YouTube, SoundCloud and leave us a five-star review and that'll allow us to keep the content coming your way. So today I have a special guest who graciously took time out to meet with me while I happen to be in town here in Salt Lake City for a conference. He's a loving father of five, an elite mile distance runner who's attempting to break the world record in the 50 and over age bracket, a successful attorney and the creator of Elements Meals. It is my pleasure to introduce Stan Graham. Stan, welcome and thank you. You're welcome, John. It's good to be with you this morning. Stan, you've got a beautiful city here. Uh, definitely a stark contrast from where I flew in from Tampa this morning. Uh, is this where you grew up originally? No, I was wondering as I was driving to the office this morning what you thought of uh, actually being able to see horizons that were beyond like a, you know, uh, maybe a 60-degree arc. I know, <laughs> right? <laughs> 180, degree, 180 degrees or at least uh, maybe 150, but yeah, it's pretty wide open space compared to the, the green places you come from. Absolutely. It's absolutely gorgeous, though. I mean, love the mountains here and uh, love the topography and just this whole area of big sky country. It's uh, I, I vacationed here with my kids in this area uh, a year ago in July and uh, just absolutely spectacular and definitely nice to see, like I said, some topography after coming from Florida, which is very, very flat. Yeah, uh, that is. Yeah, I've, I've visited Florida a little bit and that's it is flat. That's accentuated when you come from a place where you have uh, elevation. Sure. So. And then it's a shock for us, you know, when it comes to cycling and triathlon and those kinds of things. When we uh, <laughs> we come from Florida, we're used to it being flat and the wind being your only, uh, your only enemy. And then you come here to try to ride hills in places like St. George. And yeah. uh, it's, uh, it's absolutely uh, uh, taxing on your legs, but uh, it's yeah, definitely good for building up your power. Yeah, that's for sure. Yeah, the elevation change, you know, training at 4,500 feet or 6,000 feet is different than yeah, training at sea level. Yes. No doubt about it. Yes, definitely. And the elevation plays a fun, fun game in there. Oh, I so love. You got to test your VO2 max. <laughs> <laughs> I definitely learned that uh, first time I was in Boulder. I learned, I learned all about that. Uh, you're riding around there. It, it can definitely uh, test your endurance, and if you're not used to training and that kind of thing, I mean, that's why the, the endurance sports capital of the world out there, yeah. um, because everybody goes there to train and get yeah. used to that thin air. You bet. So. Gosh, well, you've clearly had success in every endeavor that you've taken on, whether it be as a father, attorney, a distance runner, and now this new endeavor with Elements, um, which is absolutely revolutionary. And I, I want to have you elaborate on Elements very soon. But first of all, you know, I want to talk about, you know, when someone's had the kind of success that you've had, um, I'd like to find out about how they got there and what were the influences. So talk about the influences, uh, whether it be family, faith, uh, what were the influences in your early life that contributed so much to your success? Well, uh, they asked me if I grew up here earlier, and the answer was no. I grew up in uh, southwestern Idaho. Okay. Outside of Boise, gotcha. of Boise, Idaho. Okay. Kind of in the, the farmland west of the city. And my father was a son of a Idaho potato farmer. Oh, wow. My dad grew up in eastern Idaho, where, yeah, they, all those wonderful, famous Idaho potatoes come from. 
Sure. So yeah, literally my paternal grandfather was a, was a big Idaho potato farmer. My dad grew up on that farm in back. Uh, he's old enough now, he's 83 now, 84, and uh, he can remember uh, you know, riding wagons and, and other farm equipment drawn by horses. I mean, it's that, it's that kind of interesting uh, compression of time between generations. And, so much technology now, but I have a father who held on to horse reins as the technology for field plowing. Okay. You know? And so I, I mentioned that because he uh, he learned from that as any farmer would that what he would teach us as boys. I have four brothers and four sisters. I'm second of nine. And anyway, we would learn. Uh, he would talk about laws of the harvest because there are laws that control. Um, uh, you know, soil productivity mm -hmm. okay. and soil health. There are laws that govern uh, plant health, plant growth, you know, whether it's irrigation or fertilization or when you plant or when you don't plant, when you harvest, when you don't harvest, all those kinds of things. They're very unforgiving. Right. I mean, if, uh, you know, if you don't have your potatoes in the ground by May 15th, then you're not going to have a harvest because it's going to freeze. So there's no almost, you need to know these laws right. and know them well and abide by them. Right. There's no flexibility. There's right. no wavering. You know, your livelihood really depends on that. Yeah, and a lot of us understand some of these. For instance, if you want to grow, if you want to grow potatoes, then you plant potatoes. Yeah. You don't plant peas. Exactly. To, to get potatoes. And so uh, there's a lot of wisdom that comes from the agricultural, you know, small farm space that a lot of the, a lot of people don't get these days because they don't, they don't grow up in the dirt. So and talk to me, if, if you would, about yeah. how, like, um, that harvest wisdom, how do you, how yeah. did you take a lot of that, a lot of those lessons, and how did you apply them to the endeavors that you embarked on in your life, yeah. in your pursuits? Well, so my dad came off that farm, and he got into the financial services industry, but he bought a patch of ground, because he knew that if, just by being raised that way himself, he knew that, you know, on a on a small little farm that uh, if you raised boys on that patch of dirt, raised kids on that dirt, then the likelihood of trouble was significantly less than what would it be otherwise. If, I mean, if you had to, if you're digging post holes and, and repairing fence and moving irrigation pipe and taking care of a, a large yard, you know, half an acre and a half of grass, mm -hmm. and a big old garden, you've got to weed that and you're taking care of animals. And, butchering animals, all that stuff that, you know, you think twice about doing something stupid. Because you understand the, the consequences of a stupid decision. Right. Right. Because they're, they can be immediate or a little longer term. It's like, well, you can make a, a really dumb decision today and you're going to pay for that in four months. Right. Unquestionably. And there's, you know, if, if there's not a recourse or redress for that bad decision, then, you know, uh, you're, that, that's a tough road to hoe. Because it is, you know, the consequence is coming. Sure. Right? So, uh, in some of the best advice my dad gave me, not, not that I've always heeded it, but he, he always says, just don't do anything stupid. And that was great advice. And the other, one of his other sayings was, uh, get the water to the end of the road. As an expression, you know, a metaphorical uh, expression of finish the job. Gotcha. If you don't get the water to the end of the row, and the, the crops at the end of the row die. Right. And that's the hardest thing to do is really make sure that the water gets to the very end. And that's the thing. And finishing the job is something that so many people 
fail to do, whether it's in their athletic training, you especially see it in business in the entrepreneurship space where people, um, you know, a, a, another well-known uh, speaker I heard recently talked about, you know, people who start new businesses and they don't take the water at the end of the road. They, they don't stick around long enough. They don't finish the job. Some folks give up and they quit and they don't stick along, stick, they don't stick around long enough to collect, to collect on all, all the time they invested, they don't finish the job. And it's really a matter of sticking around and, and finishing the deal because oftentimes you don't even know how close you are to breaking through right. when it comes to whatever it is your goal is, whether it's athletic and business, uh, whatever else is you're trying to, you know, that you're trying to pursue, what you're trying to achieve. And so, yeah, really finishing the job and seeing things all the way through is, I think that's something that's, and having that level of patience and that resilience and sticking to things is something that, you know, it's it's very difficult for a lot of people because a lot of people yeah. will will give up and you know they don't they don't follow it all the way through to the end. Yeah, and part of that is as far as the laws of harvest go, there are what you learn is that there are seasons. And so there are seasons to plant. Yeah, there there are seasons to cultivate soil, prepare for planting, and there are seasons to plant and seasons to nurture seasons to harvest, and then there are seasons where there is no, where you don't do any work. Mm -hmm. You've done the harvest, and the harvest is in, or you've sold it, and, and you're done. You know, winters are typically those periods where we, you know, the farmer doesn't work. Gotcha. Because the work's been done. But, so, the perspective is interesting, because in the winter, it's, uh, it's a period of, uh, not necessarily rest, but it's a different kind of work. Sure. Can be done, right? Like, you're planning for spring, because just so happens that after every winter, you can you can expect a spring. Mm -hmm. So sometimes in our lives we have winters where, for some reasons, no reasons, whatever, we experience uh, winters where our ability to work and produce is really inhibited. Sure. And uh, which is a trial. It right. can be a real trial if you don't have a plan on that. Well, it's like with a lot of athletes with off season. You yeah. know, with triathletes, it's like. You know, what, how are you going to spend your off season? Okay, there's no more races now, you know, from November on until, you know, maybe February, March or whatnot. Right. What, how are you going to plan for the next year? How are you, how are you going to prepare yourself? You know, maybe you're not spending all those all that time if you're a triathlete cycling or running. Right. But what are you going to do to make yourself stronger? Are you going to do more strength and conditioning? Right. Um, what what uh, changes are you going to make in the off season? You know, so that you can set yourself up for success in that year yeah. and be able to endure that next year. You know, yeah. the same thing on a farm. You gotta, you gotta have a plan in place so that you're gonna be able to endure throughout that year. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, definitely. You know, there's there's the parts that uh, you have to be more cerebral. Mm -hmm. You know, some you know some of the parts. Some, it sounds like some of the seasons are more getting out and doing, but then it sounds like the winter time is maybe it's not as much physically taxing labor, but it's being cerebral and having your plan and charting your course for. Yeah. How you're going to complete the cycle over and over? Yeah, it reminds me. Just I was thinking of uh, there's a a, a book uh, title is the one thing, and uh, the author of the book uh, identifies um, Mike Phelps as a uh, as an example of uh, powerful habits. Is uh, sometimes in terms of finishing a project or staying on task or seeing a, you know, getting the water to the end of the row isn't a function of. A lot of people think, well, it's discipline and willpower. But uh, willpower is not always on call. 
you know, there are days when you and I will, you know, we have specific uh, athletic goals to achieve, or business goals to achieve, and, and sometimes we can be motivated to do that, and sometimes, you know, honestly, I am not motivated. There's times we don't want to go out, we yeah, do, well, do that workout, we don't feel like doing it. Yeah, exactly. You, uh, you say, well, okay, come on, willpower, uh, get me through this hard thing, and so many muscle through it, and it's not there to do. Right. And so the um, the perspective from this book, the one thing, is really to identifying the one thing that you can do that, is, that creates the most impact that day, that creates subsequent impacts tomorrow and the day after that and the day after that. Mm -hmm. uh, and pay attention to the one thing. So breaking it down to a smaller goal. Smaller, smaller goals and time efficiency and creating habits because once ha once habits are created then then they're very behaviorally they're very efficient you don't have to work at them so find right. one find one thing to focus on and, and focus on doing that really right well. strive for automaticity in that thing so he talks about michael phelps and says look you're the most accomplished olympic athlete if he was a country he'd be number seven in olympic history in terms of medals one mm -hmm. yeah, he's a human and he'd be the seventh ranked country in Olympic history, in terms of medals won, and uh, so part of his analysis uh, or part of his practice, Phelps' practice from the time that he was 14 through the Beijing uh, Olympics, he trained seven days a week, and instead of six or five or whatever, but trained seven days a week because he said, if I train seven days a week, then I'm going to pick up 52 days of training that someone who trains six days a week keeps and so all those subtle I, ways that seem subtle now but then when you look at it that way I mean that's a great days. way to pile up an edge yeah 52 days of training and, and what kind of training that involved you know we don't need to talk about the specifics of that but he had made a commitment one of, one of his behavior one of his habits was six hours in the pool every day just one of his warm-ups I know was <laughs> like a major for most people training for an Ironman you know what they would do for their workout for their swim that's his warm-up yeah <laughs> that's an acquired skill over how many years right and how many thousands and thousands of hours sure right but for me the 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 use of that analysis was uh, the value of a daily decision because over the course of a year he could pick up 52 additional days of training that a focused days of training whether it you know, it was rehab, training, rest, training, but whatever it was, but those mm -hmm. were days that were, he was engaged in gaining an edge on right. his unidentified opponents because mm -hmm. when they were sleeping, he was training. Right. And, man, he just, that, that proved out. Mm -hmm. you yeah, know? that one of those days by themselves, that, that extra day week might not seem like a lot at that time, but it adds up, you know. Yeah. It's, it's just like, you know, the, the, the analogy that, you know, a lot of folks use now, and I, I talk about with my clients is, is the baseball analogy with hitting singles. Yeah. You know, and try to hit singles every day. You don't have to swing for the fences, try to hit the grand slam with the uppercut swing, because yeah. chances are, more often than not, if you're going for the grand slam, the uppercut swing, you're probably going to strike out more than, but in baseball, the guys that are in the Hall of Fame that have 3,000 hits yeah. are the ones that go out consistently day in and day out and hit those singles. Yeah. And if he's finding 52 more days in the year to hit those singles, that's going to pile up, and you know that becomes 52 hits. Yeah, that's uh, 52 hits. That's that's one fourth of a very good season for a baseball player. Yeah. yeah. So application to your question of how do you accomplish things is you it's you you pick up the bat and swing. In the first place, you pick up the bat. 
right. and willing to go to the plate mm -hmm. and, and say, throw me, throw the ball. Right. You know, and a lot of people just won't pick up the bat. Right. And when they don't. So if you don't do that, then you know, the, the result is you're not going to get a hit. You're going to pick up the bat, no hit. Right. So I think it, from, a, from a daily practice thing, it is uh, it's not uncommon for people to, if, in terms of experiencing a physical training trough or a business practice trough or you know, business development or sales work, whatever that trough happens to be in whatever area of your life or a parent trough. I have having difficult relationships with my kids right now, that kind of thing. That will understand that that's a trough, which is part of a wave. And then mm -hmm. in order for there to be troughs, there have to be crests. Right. So put it in perspective. Right. Don't let the trough keep you from preparing today. Right. Parent today. Yep. Love today. It's those difficult times where we don't feel like it's tough. That's that's where the growth happens. Right. That's where the where the growth is, but so that's where power that's where the that's where habitual power lies instead of instead of perhaps willpower. It's habitual ha power that these are the you know, these are the behaviors I'm going to uh, develop as a parent that I'll execute every day, regardless of anything else that happens. For instance, and for me, one of the things I did as a parent uh, was I read to my kids. You know, from the time that they were three to the time that they were 12, even older, I read to my kids every day, you know, every, every evening. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, as a result of that, I mean, I could talk to my kids and ask them, what, what's the one thing your dad did? That, if, if anything, right? that it made any kind of contribution to where you are today and what you're doing today. You know, I could, if you would like it, you'd say, well, can't we read together? They're always going to remember that. Yeah. So, Especially with that kind of consistency. When yeah. you're reading them every every single night and you're you're taking that time. I mean, yeah. there's, I mean, I mean, talking about kids, I mean, there's just, there's nothing better that you can give than yeah. time. I mean, um, when I've worked with families before, you know, they, they talk about, the you know you know kids and entertaining their kids and you know reinforcement and, and whatnot but the, we are the most positively reinforcing thing for our kids you are the best toy that you have as your kid yeah. you can do things for your child that no toy no video game nothing yeah. can do and so when you're when you're providing that constant positive reinforcement I mean that's the, that's something they're always going to remember because you know time is something that you can't get back. Yeah. And you know that's something that you can always give, and it's, it's the best gift that you can always give. So yeah, yeah, I think in terms of experiencing success is a function of how many failures you can experience, and then pivot. You know, learn and pivot. Exactly. So I've certainly had times in my life where I, it, it seemed that uh, uh, failures lasted for years. Can you give me an example the, of any of those? In the attempts to pivot were, uh, uh, I mean, the distance from those failures gives some additional perspective, but uh, there was a time, you know, in the last seven, eight years, I mean, uh, um, I, I went through a, I actually started running as a function of going through a really dark period in my life, which was a result of physical failure and uh, economic failure and marriage failure everything so running became something that it was, was self-administered uh, uh, medication really. sure and 
so I didn't I can, I, I can identify yeah, with that. So I, I didn't <laughs> run track in high school. I didn't run track in college. You know, I, I skied. And then I played basketball in high school until the coach said, you know, as a junior, like, you know, these are contemporaneous seasons and you can't, you didn't make, make a decision where you're going to ski or play basketball. And I said, I'll ski. But, uh, um, the, uh, yeah, my challenge was that, uh, I, I was going through some, some marital issues that led to, potential divorce and trying to work through those for years. Then at a certain point in time, I had uh, multiple shoulder surgeries and was looking at the oh, wow. losing velocity, actually about 80% of the use of my arm. Oh my gosh. Just because of uh, shoulder repair, you know, uh, rotator cuff repair, surgery failures. And uh, really being in physical trauma that way from injury and then repeated surgeries and recoveries for over a year and which played absolute hell with in havoc with my legal practice because I mean you have no business advising anybody on anything when you're on payment oh my know, gosh kind of that kind of stuff sure and I was a sole practitioner and so a lot of things combined and yeah it's a marriage of 28 years so it was a very five kids I mean it was just an extremely challenging time and, and running became a uh, one thing that I could do because I mean I, I was training six days a week for I, I trained six days a week basically since I had been a sophomore in high school. Okay, so the running so all just, started as a as a sophomore in high school. Yeah, I mean I in a sophomore in high school I, the day I, was, I had a gym class and we we started the semester with a test and it was um, how many uh, chin ups, push ups, and dips, just three movements. How many can you do in a, in a minute? You know, for each a minute of push-ups, a minute of chin-ups, a minute of dips. And a minute to win it. <laughs> and, and, I, and my performance was uh, uh, was terrible. And so uh, I just made a commitment at the beginning of that semester. Like, that's not going to happen again because it happened in front of everybody. Oh, you know, gosh. the whole class, like, oh, jeez. So, exactly. so this is in public. This was kind of a yeah, public so embarrassment. You know, it's like, well, it's competition, you know, open competition, but it was... I mean, it was just, hey, we're going to start the class, let's measure where you are. Okay. So we can, so then you can decide what you want to do about it. And at the end of the semester, you can see where you've been and where, you, where you've gone, what you've accomplished. Why do I have a feeling that was a low moment that very much fueled you? Oh, yeah, it was, that was one moment I said, okay, that's never going to happen again. You know, I'm not going to be embarrassed like that again. Or I'm not going to finish low like that, just. I'm not going to not perform like that. So at yeah at the end of that semester, then you know I rather than being in the you know the bottom half of the class, I was in the top five percent of the class in terms of you know, performance on those movements in that minute time period. So yeah, that just set a course, right? It's just like getting the water to the end of the rope. Just every day, you work on it, you work on it, you work on it. So it wasn't like. I think one of the challenges we have as it really as athletes is understanding that the only thing that really matters is today. What, what do you do today? Mm-hmm. What, what you do take what do you do today? What you do today takes care of tomorrow. Right. Right? right. It's just what are you gonna do today? 
Sure. Instead of being overwhelmed by, well, I'm in this condition now, and I've fallen off the wagon, I'm blah, blah, blah. And, okay. Just train today. I think that's a great point because, you know, the most successful athletes are ones that are able to do a couple things. First of all, they have a short memory because, you know, the things that happened in the past, you know, if you get bogged down with what's in the past, I mean, there's, I mean, there's two conditions as a mental health practitioner. I see people who are depressed are bogged down with what's happening in the past. Yes. People who have anxiety are bogged down with the future and they're too focused on that and what might happen or you know, about things that haven't even happened yet. It may not even happen, and you can go into a downward spiral if, if A happens, then B happens, and C happens. But if you keep your focus on today and what your goals are today and focus on winning that day, yeah. and if I'm hearing you correctly, that's yeah, that's what we need to do. Yeah, it's a, it's a, that's a great way to put it, John, because I've, I've spent plenty of time in both of those spaces, both in depression and anxiety. I've spent plenty of time with that, which really pushed me to start running, which really my, uh, my journey in running really started out just as a, as walking, because in that. Are we uh, talking seven year, seven or eight years back? Yeah, okay. what I'm trying to repair from these, you know, it was about, well, about six years ago actually, but trying to re- recover from these shoulder injuries and surgeries, uh, the only thing that I really could do safely in order to not further damage myself and inhibit, repair, that kind of thing, is walk. And, you know, strap my arms to my body and walk. And so, as that progressed day to day, uh, it wasn't just how far I could walk, but a period of time, I'd measure time, you know, and then be able to pick up a pace to a jog, and then I just kept track of my time. So walking became jogging, became running, right. became... Yeah. And I just, yeah, I was able to increase my time. And at a certain point in time when I was getting close, uh, I got to a six-minute mile. Because I'd never, I'd, I mean, I didn't run track. So I'm not a runner, you know. Now, now you said sophomore in high school, you you, you had been tra- training a lot. Were, like, yeah, that's just gym, you know. But I played basketball oh, okay. in high school. And then, so you weren't, you weren't a track star in no, high school? No, not at all. Okay. So there's not this long run, there's, no, there's, there's no not history. long-standing track background no, or no. collegiate background. No. Wow. No. So No. So this is something that started out as this is the only means of physical exercise I can get right now due to my injuries. What can I do? And you know, I'm going through a lot of things emotionally in my personal life and yeah. I need an outlet, you know, of course exercise we all we all need it to, you know, to manage our stress. As an outlet, so so this isn't you know this is a good outlet for me, and this is um, one of the only things that I can do. And walking becomes jogging becomes, yeah, four and a half minute miles. Yeah. See, so I was. I, How did you discover that well, speed? I, mean, time, you... I, I had no idea what speed was. I mean, I really I didn't. I approached running from a very uneducated place. It just you know it was to go out and, and start doing it, really start walking. But it, again, it, for the purpose of it wasn't. It was physical, but it was physical to handle mentally, because mm-hmm. I, I knew that connection in myself. Sure. If I wasn't doing, you know, my physicality affected my you know, psychology. Of I course. was absolutely aware of that. I absolutely knew that. And so, from an endorphin standpoint, yeah. from a confidence standpoint, look in the mirror. Mean? Look in the mirror standpoint. Oh, yeah, absolutely. That was just really. Uh, uh, well, it, that's it's a weakness for. I, I, I look at that. I look at that over the. Number of years to say, well, that's a weakness. Man, it 
should, you should be better off if you look in the mirror and accept yourself for whoever you are. But as you are, you know, as you are right now, but I've just never satisfied with that. We talked a little bit before. We I, I I don't think I'm satisfied with that either. I you know I, I don't you know I. I don't think we need to necessarily be, you know, looking in the mirror and saying, you know, I'm satisfied, you know, you know, in, in saying, okay, where I'm is enough. I mean, I, I think you, I think you need to have, a, you need to be comfortably unsatisfied. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. Doesn't mean you don't love yourself. You don't, you don't appreciate it, yourself, right, but, but you can expect more from yourself. You know, we can always better our best. Yeah. We can always get better. We can always improve. And, um, I mean, that's that's what makes our country great. That's what makes people people great. I mean, and like we were talking about beforehand, if we're not always trying to do something to improve, if we don't have something that we're striving for, um, that can sometimes set us up for getting depressed. Yeah, for sure. If you're not planting, what are you going to harvest? Um, you know, too, too often people have their finish line and, yeah. you know, and like we were talking about before, um, you know, we can't have that finish line if, cause if we have that finish line, we're going to get stale and, you know, we stop improving, we stop growing. We stop doing the things that got us to the point where we are here, you know, and if we're, if we're staying still, you know, in reality, we're getting worse because the rest of the world is getting better around us. So it's, it's important that we continue to have those, those challenges that we, that we put in place. So talk to me about the unique challenges of taking on, you're in the process of trying to break the world record for the mile in the 50 and over age bracket. Yeah. Talk to me about the unique challenges in training. I mean, I, I've seen a lot of people, you know, in their 50s doing Ironmans. You, you see a lot of people out doing jogging. But that level of speed for this this kind of speed event, what kind of unique challenges do you see training for this as a as someone in your 50s? Yeah. What what are some unique challenges there? One of the uh, I think one of the benefits that I have is I don't have one of the benefits one of the uh, reasons I was able to enter into uh, a conversation with myself about that kind of wild was actually some ignorance quite a bit of ignorance about what it would take uh, and I think that's so uh, I was you know, I was getting close I was, Better than a six-minute mile. At that, and at that point, I remember walking, finishing up some running, walking back home in the evening, thinking, "I wonder, I wonder if I could run a four-minute mile." And thinking about uh, Bannister's mile, and yeah, he, I'm a little taller than usual. I'm six-five, and right now I'm about two nineteen, and uh, my race weights. Around about 207, okay. maybe 205, something like that. Uh, and I've, I've been doing a lot of resistance training, a lot of weight strength training and flexibility, that kind of thing. Sure. Um, but he, uh, I just asked myself, I wonder if I could do that. And I had read about him, I've watched film about him, and you know, mentally, my thought was, yeah, well, that, that that mile is a is a it's a finite distance with a finite number of steps at a specific uh, stride rate, and, and he did that. So why why can't I do that? Sure. And Roger Bennett was he a doctor of some kind as well? Yeah. 
I thought so. Cause yeah, he was going through his schooling, right? Okay. Plus, he had a lousy track, you know. I mean, they were running on cinders. Okay. They had, they had no foot tech. They had no shoe technology. So he's doing all this while having another career. Yeah, he's his, his life's going on. I mean, he's not. I mean, and necessarily privileged. I mean, the guy's got a lot of time commitments, a lot of rank commitments, and right. family commitments, and all the all kinds of all kinds of strains that uh, we all go through. But he was uh, very comparable to you know the, the commitments that you have. Yeah, he, you know, I mean, you're, but, you're raising five children, and very, you're yeah. common kind of commitments. And but he had set out on this, which was remarkable. He had this uh, vision of being able to break this uh, barrier. It wasn't just a world record. It was a it was a barrier. You know, this where you, uh, everybody in the know of that day said you can't do it. It's impossible. It's physically impossible. Right. And there's all the naysayers, and that's the biggest. It has never been done before, so right. so it can't be done. I mean, it's like a conversation now of running, you know, a, a sub two hour marathon. Uh, that's not possible. I mean, that's you know, and now it's like Ugh. until it Ugh. is <laughs> until somebody shows. So, you. like, holy cow, we're oh, wow. So it opens up. So my perspective on it was, like, well, he did it. Why can't I do it? Uh, I've got myself in reasonably good shape all my life. I've treated my body well. I've eaten well all my life. I mean, I, I'm one of the weirdos that it cared from a young age and actually maintained a lifestyle uh, to do that without anybody's. I didn't, I didn't need anybody to. So anyway, that was the initial. Uh, that was the initial uh, thought. Is uh, I wonder if I can do that. I wonder if I can do that. And so, uh, I it was a month or so later, coming home from uh, some training that I uh, I thought I have. I wonder if there's a world record for like 15 all the guys. I'm 57 now, you know. And uh, I went home, and found out, yeah, there was, and it was like 428.9. Like, well, great, I'll pass that on the way. On the way to That comes before four minutes, so great, I'll, I'll do that. I'll just catch that. I'll just do that on the way past, you know, on, on, the, way, on the way to four. And so... Uh, just a stepping stone along. <laughs> you know, there, there is a lot, to, there is something to say about um, making a commitment before you know everything it's going to take to do it. Um, even with the company I started a few years ago is Elmas company I had no idea what it would take I, I knew what I wanted to create mm -hmm. but if I had known everything that it would require of me mm -hmm. to actually do it I don't know if I would have started sure and so I think there's a there's a brilliance and ignorance right because uh, if mental no limiters yeah uh, so um, but it's, it's not necessarily un it was that it there was uh, enough ignorance about the uh, the issue of running a four minute mile that I actually believed I could do it, yeah. and and that makes a big difference. I mean, you asked yeah. if you and if you don't have those mental limiters, I mean, the greatest limiters that we have in our lives are self-imposed. Most of them are. It's really and, and it's, so if that's removed from the puzzle, it's really wild. Yeah, we mentioned a couple of names uh, before we started recording, you know, uh, James Lawrence and David Cockins. I think guys that have been, and there are many others, but people that really challenge sure. 
really challenge the idea of mental limitations and right. demonstrate that it's and and we're really able to rise and, and, and gain sorry to interrupt you. Uh, and to but to get fueled by all the people saying that they couldn't what they couldn't do. I mean yeah. to do you know for in James Lawrence's case, the Iron Cowboy, fifty Iron Man's in fifty states in fifty days. I mean, there's always people saying that you can't do it and and, and just that it's not only physically impossible, right. but logistically you can't. Yeah. Sure. You know, and, and and on top of that, there's people out there that they don't, you know, that there's always going to be the haters and naysayers that are trolling you on Facebook or whatever that they don't want to see people succeed, you yeah. know, because they're jealous and they don't want to see that happen. You know, and, and with David Goggins, I mean, he had plenty of people telling them he couldn't do anything yeah. along the way. And, and then he goes and breaks the world record for uh, pull-ups in yeah. a day doing over 4,000 pull-ups. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, look at yeah, like I say, I mean, was, and look at the the price of paper. So yeah, it's really fast. It's fascinating. The more my training has progressed, because uh, at a certain point I got a, a, a two years ago I got a professional coach, because I didn't reach really a limit physically mm -hmm. because of my 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 form was terrible. I didn't know how how bad it was. I wasn't a runner, so I my running efficiency was terrible. And I was like, you know, pounding a square peg in a round hole. That's probably one of the other age-related things that happens too. Because with running, I mean, the more time that we spend running, the more habits, bad habits, we pick up along the way. If you if you ever look at when children run, how wonderful their form is. Yeah. They don't have any bad habits yet. Yeah, they're not wearing shoes. <laughs> if you want to learn how to run, take your freaking shoes off and find it faster. That's why I've seen some of the videos of you running without yes, the shoes. Absolutely. Well, that's a great way to perfect your form because if your form isn't perfect, you're going to hurt yourself pretty badly. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I would, I would wonder how many people, uh, what percentage of people, if they, if you say, let's go to the park, take your shoes off, and let's run, if they'll actually do a heel strike, they won't do it because it's not natural. Right. They won't do it. Uh, put them on a little bit of an incline, a barefoot run uphill. You know, how does that feel? What's the position of your body? That kind of thing. Where's your, how is your foot striking the ground? That's how you need to hit the ground. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, the, the, the mechanics. You might cure plantar fasciitis for the whole rest of the world if you do that. You don't, you don't uh, yeah, the running shoe industry has is, is created more problems, more joint problems and knee surgeries and oh, everything else. Than I believe it. Yeah, it's terrible. It's terrible stuff. But anyway, <laughs> the... Uh, yeah, so I got my coach, you know, the running efficiency thing. I, I, don't know, I, I back out, John, a little bit on a broader topic. One of the things, when I started the Elms Company, one of the things, that, the, part of the spirit of that effort uh, that came with it was my desire to, a, a really deep desire to give a shout out to Man, uh, because I'm a man. Yeah, but it's but it's really a shout out to everybody. Um, that, and particularly at the time with men, it was uh, because I had friends, a lot of relationships that were forty and older, mm -hmm. thinking that you know their uh, physical fitness warranty had expired, and now they were on the downslope of physical activity because now I'm prone to injury and I'm this and I'm that and 
and I just uh, part of my desire was just a shout out to these guys to get the hell off the couch. Yes. Get get off get the hell off the mental couch and right. the physical couch. Right. And stop resigning yourself to um, to mediocrity. Stop stop making excuses. F physically, yeah. Whatever whatever you're telling yourself, it's a lie. Thank you. Oh yes. Yes. It's not just an excuse, it's a freaking lie. So stop telling yourself lies. Stop believing them. Because the body's a fascinating thing. If you will facilitate it, yeah. then it, it can do, and your mind, just All fascinating comes. things. And if you yes. facilitate yes. them, yes. Yes. if you facilitate them, then you can accomplish remarkable things. That's one of the things that has fueled my pursuit of this uh, breaking world record. Because I'm not a runner. I mean, I, I run now, but I don't have this history of running track, and you know. So who's to say what a runner is? <laughs> you know, being in college and running track, and you know. Maybe not in the traditional sense, but. <laughs> right, and, and so it's it's true, and so part of the message, part of my reality is that I I I'm at an elite level now that, I, and I started this in earnest really five six years ago. And it's, it's a daily commitment. And uh, and I'm not special. I'm, I'm a common guy. But you're showing what can be done. And in, in, in that shout out, I mean, it's, you know, have, have you ever heard the analogy, you want to be the lighthouse and not the tugboat? Sure, that's, yeah. This is total example of being the lighthouse, you know, giving a shout out to men and showing them what is possible. Okay, just because you're 57, you're at risk for heart disease or for you know this condition and that condition. Yeah, turn that shit on um, its head. Or exactly, you know, it, just all because of that is, all of that is a function of habit. Right. All of that chronic diseases is the outcome of a habit. Right. So change the habits. Sure. It changed the outcome. It doesn't happen overnight, but it happens fast. Right. I mean, in the course of five years, yeah. three years, two years. I mean, it's it's right. amazing what we can do. Right. It all comes back to tackling those core beliefs that people have about themselves, about the world, about the future. You know, with with regards to that, because you know, it's not events that make people feel depressed or anxious and as a behavior give up. It's how you think about you know, it's it's those thoughts that you're having. Uh, what are, what you, are you telling yourself? What are the lies, like you yeah. said, that we're telling ourselves? And that's the part, you know, as a, as a psychologist, that that's the part that I always get people to wrestle with. And the people that are successful athletes, they're the ones that are able to cope with depression and anxiety well, um, and you know, cope with any of those negative emotions because they're able to reel in those thoughts and, and not let them get away, not let them become the, these limiters. Yeah. Yeah, so, yeah, as an example of this, so I checked out one of your Instagram posts this last week, and you're up running, you know, uh, you're running, basically doing uh, repeats. You know, oh, I yes. Know, at five in the morning or something, and uh, I can relate with that. I mean, running, uh, well, you were running 30-second repeats. Uh, yeah, 20-second repeats on the minute. Okay, yeah. 20 seconds on the minute. Yeah. And so, for me, uh, some of my... My training, it would be analogous to that, is running 200-meter repeats on 30 seconds. Okay. And looking to hit 
you know, between 32 and 28, 28 to 32 seconds. Well, for each of those uh, 200 meters, yeah, which is really a, a really quick anabolic uh, speed rate, right? And, uh, but the, um, when you talk about battling, you know, kind of, uh, especially these days, people stressed out of their minds and anxiety and depression on the rise. And, uh, I'll tell you, if I'm having a bad day, mentally, or there's some kind of challenge that I'm experiencing mentally that day, I just suit up and go to the track and in 40 seconds that is gone. Because my body's, I'm more focused on I, I need to breathe. And I'm feeling fatigue. Uh, here comes the lactic acid in. Now, okay, my oxygenation, you know, is decreasing because that just happens. And, and I've got to speed up. Mm -hmm. So regardless of what the concern was that day when I got to the track, under a minute on the track, you're not worried about anything. In fact, you can't even remember it. That's good therapy. It is. Because now all you're concerned about is, I gotta breathe. I've got to. I've got to pull in. I've got to pull in more air, more oxygen, and I can feel the fatigue in my legs. And I've got to overcome that mentally and pick it up. I gotta get pick this next up, repeat. Maintain the speed. Stay in the flow. Do your body checks. You know, in terms of your stride rate and your foot strike. If you're, if you're relaxed in your shoulders and your hands, you know, all these different things because you. Know, Speed comes from form. Sure. If you maintain form, that's the relative security. Yeah. Focus on all those things to do. Yeah, and it's it. I mean, you, you do focus on those so you know what form feels like when you do run, so that when you actually get out there, you can run without. I mean, you have the option of thinking about your form and checking things, but then also, so there are sometimes you say, screw it, just run. Right. Run for the run for the hell, run for fun. Right. Have fun. Just run and. So when those things combine and you experience what runners call flow. Chick sent Mahai. Oh, that's just like, oh man. Great book. Yeah, that's just a, an exceptional experience when that happens. Speaking of flow, um, as a psychologist, I have to ask this question. In sports psychology, one of the key elements to success is having a pre-game, pre-race, mm -hmm. pre-match routine mm -hmm. that gets you focused, gets level of energy arousal so that you can really compete and just hone in and perform at the highest level. What is your pre-race routine and ritual that gets you just that perfect flowing in that zone? What helps me get to that zone is I watch, I do, before every training session, I watch three videos. What are those three and they're videos? All, they're, they're videos of Steve Prefontaine. Okay, tell us a little more about. Yeah, Steve so there's there's a video of uh, of Prefontaine that is set to uh, U2's "Where the Streets Have No Name." Oh, great so song! Him, so it's him running. He's on the track, just different races he's running, seeing him. And then there's uh, there's another video, you know, with uh, again him running and speaking, set to some music by Muse. And uh, I know it talks about whether this is uh, whether this is crazy or love. What, what is this that we're doing? And, gotcha. And it's and it's a love. It's a love. And right. so even just yesterday, I was doing some kinesthetic training where my coaches uh, 
and asking me to walk, you know, in five minute increments, walk for five minutes, focusing on which foot is heavy, which foot feels heavy. This is done on a treadmill. And then five minutes walking, lightening the heavy feel of that foot. And then the last five minutes walking with making no sound, walking noiselessly. And then do that again, running. So I, I, you know, doing that for 15 minutes and the next 15 minutes in those segregated uh, five so, minutes. So running minutes. without making noise. Right. It's a good yeah. way to make sure you don't stick to the ground. Yeah. And, and more time in contact with the ground, that's more drag. That's Understand how that happens. You yeah. know, it's slow. What's the, what, what are the mechanics that are going to make that possible? Because if you're overstriding, that's not going to happen. If you're overstriding, you're going you're gonna to hear it. Oh, sure. And you're going to feel it all the way up your leg. You know, you're yep. gonna, it's you're, like yep. putting on the brakes, that heel. jamming up. Mm -hmm. So you want that foot to come, you want your foot strike to engage right below your hip. Right. You know, in a, in a, in a toe heel, just touch that heel just enough to engage the glutes, which powers your leg up. Right. So you're not focused on pulling your legs up, it's powered up because you engage your glute at the bottom of that stride. By contact the heel to the ground, right. bam, it throws your leg up. Got that, got that perfect flexion right. at the ankle, at the knee, at the hip. Right. And so, uh, but doing that, and, and so then doing that at a, uh, at different speeds, you know, so doing that at maybe, uh, you know, a, a seven to six, uh, a seven minute, a seven minute mile pace, and then at maybe a five and a half minute mile pace, but focusing on, um, which foot feels heavy with the first five minutes, lightening that fill the next five minutes, and then the third uh, set, you know, that third five minutes is be noiseless or as quietly as possible. Wow. And so that really focuses you on, uh, it's like a moving proprioception work where you're hyper-conscious of the contact of your foot. Yes. With the with the surface, and I running barefoot really helps with that because there's no uh, there's no barrier between your foot and the surface, so you can feel you know, incorporating can, all that sensory yeah. input with the motor input to put yeah. out that perfect stride. And then, yeah, and then you begin to feel efficiency. Yes. Oh, this is okay. Now I'm now I'm efficient. Now I'm efficient because it, efficiency requires effort. Of course. But the output of efficiency is greater than the input of efficiency. So that's, that's, that's where the efficiency comes in. <laughs> so, but it's prefontaine. Steve is my hero, man. The guy was, uh, so I watched these three videos. I'll share them with you. Um, because he, he was a, uh, I mean, I can watch those videos and I get, it's, it's such, they're so inspiring to me. Uh, there are days when I, I get emotional about it, and sure. where I can feel the I can feel the love of the of the sport. I can feel the love of the activity. Yep. And I just had this conversation last night. Uh, friend, after actually Joe is uh, he finished up my work, uh, my training that day. Said, you know, I was in this third set of this uh, fifteen minute, you know, three x three by fifteen minute uh, routine. Gotcha. That. At the higher at this, uh, is about 
about a six minute, five and a half minute pace. Okay. Five and a half minute mile pace, you know, some good 10, 11 uh, miles an hour. And, and it's a pretty good clip. Yeah, that's that's cruising. And, and feeling the pain come on. Feeling that come on and smiling. Seeing that come, seeing that pain, visualizing that pain coming at me and smiling to receive it. Being joyful to receive it because I realize now I've done what's necessary to experience this pain, which is hard. Right. To get to this level of pain is difficult. I've accomplished that. That's wonderful. Accept it. Here it comes. You're almost smiling as now, though that pain is a reward. Yeah, it is. That's the reward. That's very Goggins-esque. Yeah, yeah, it's a reward. It's, it's a beautiful feeling. It's a really beautiful feeling to understand that this isn't going to kill me. That there is no danger here. Right. Whatever my mind is telling me, whatever my body is telling me about, oh, you've got to stop this because it hurts. I mean, that's to, to find joy, to find joy and happiness in experiencing that. Right. It's really liberating because you understand that uh, I have accomplished, I've done what's necessary in order to get here. That's a lot of work. So that's an getting to that point where you say, I'm beginning to hit my limit, that's a fascinating place to be. So a, a place of wonderful gratitude because it takes so much work to find where your limits are. Sure. Mentally, physically, you've, searching for the outer bounds of your right. limits, you've got to find those areas before you can ever get beyond them. Right. Before you can discover what does it feel like to get beyond that. And that, that is fascinating for me. It's that, what's beyond this? Can I, you know, can I go another five seconds? Can I go another five seconds? Can I go another few seconds? It's where you feel. It's I. There's this is this, this is powerful. Well, I, this I, this is, this is powerful no. nuggets, folks. I hope you're listening closely. This this is, this is powerful. There there's a point in my in my training where there's some exercises I can do, and then in my training where I call it where I go blue liquid. Blue liquid. Blue liquid. Tell us more about that. Well, because uh, my hearing fades. Uh, my sight really decreases at the margins. Uh, so everything... Almost all, like a tunnel all, vision. Yeah, all, tunnel and then ambient sounds uh, recede. So everything becomes silent. And what I can hear is my breathing and my heartbeat. And I can feel my feet on the track. And uh, the effort seems to diminish. Because every, everything else recedes. And I say blue liquid because I experience this feeling of floating and that there is no friction. That, that inside of me, I'm nothing but blue liquid. And it's this flow. No friction. Yes. No resistance. Everything in perfect synchrony. Yeah. And, it, and it's, it's really fascinating. And what I've, I've discovered, because I've done this, uh, there's some, like I say, some movements, some training movements that I can do that, that bring this on. Um, it, you can approach, for me, I approach this feeling when I'm, when I'm touching the edges of passing out. You know, with, that's the amount of physical mental exertion is, uh, you're getting to that point. But before you get there, and maintaining an ability to stay there, because you want to, Instead of saying, well, I'm going to give over, and the body's just saying, okay, we're going to give over, but choosing to stay there, that's, 
It is. I haven't. I've never done. I've never abused any substances. But I've got to think that whatever people, uh, whatever feelings. Well, they what get, you're describing this there, is one of that, the that's got to be better than any other it's, substance. It's, there. It's it's a mag- It's absolutely a magical feeling because I feel like yeah, I do feel like I'm levitating. I feel like I'm absolutely floating. Yeah. And I it, it the mind my mind believes it. And, and it's a it's a wonderful experience. So. Um, how often have you gotten in that zone? How how often does that happen when you get into that blue liquid stage? Yeah, it's not. Uh, it's more frequent now because it's a it's a habit. Ah, it's a it's a skill set. Yes, it's just like meditation. You know, yeah. the more we meditate and and do re, you know relaxation exercises or imagery, the more we practice those mental skills, like any other skill, like riding a bike or whatever else. The, the more we do it, the more automatic it starts to become. We, we get into that mode faster yeah. and deeper. Yeah. And so the, yeah. you know, the more those things become habit and automatic for you, yeah. you know, the, that's, that's more of the blue liquid stage that you get yeah. to benefit from and enjoy. Yeah. And so in athletic pursuits, there's, there's nothing better yeah. than that feeling. Yeah. You begin to understand what it takes to get there, which is, uh, it's a red zone, right? It, it's just a really painful. You got to go through this painful place because your limits are. You're always pushing your limits out, so there's always work to get to them before you can get past them. But that's just an awesome place to. That's such a great place to sure. explore. Is that fuzzy boundary right? And uh, and so many people are so close to getting to the other side of it, and that they don't realize it. And I think there's few people like yourself that actually keep pushing to get to that other side. A lot of people they get to that, you know, supposed limit. They're you know that that ceiling. Oh, yeah, most of and us then, will knock off way then, before and, we even and, get to that. Right, they stop short. Yeah, because and, and, and yeah, they don't stick around long enough to collect the payout, like we were talking well, yeah, about earlier. Yeah, the, the payout's expensive because uh, you have to you have to deal with the pain. And, you know, big investment up front. Yeah. You've got to be willing to pay that price every time, right? Every time, and uh, so the thing—the reason that that, Steve, that Prefontaine, the reason that Pre inspires me—is because he was a front runner. Yeah, he just ran from the front. Yeah, he didn't run strategically. His strategy was to run his opponents to death because uh, he he believed just take over from the start and yeah, he believed categorically that he could endure more pain than. That completely, like he could endure more pain than he. So he would just run from the front for the whole race. He would run from the front, and, if, and he said, "If anybody's going to beat me, then they will pay. They'll pay for it. You know, they're, they're going to bleed because like I can bleed. I, I can I can suffer more pain than anybody. So if they want to beat me, bring it. They're not stronger than me. He he believed that that he could outlast them just because he could tolerate." And when you're taking off and you're leading from the front right off the bat, that's in, in doing it. That's that's got to demoralize the competition. When well, it, it can be at the same time, you know, from a, as a triathlete, you know, I mean, if you're if you're breaking at the wind and everybody's drafting off of you, and that's a fact. So he's running at the highest drag point, and everybody's drafting off of him. Everybody else is back in a little peloton kind right, of thing. Right. But he says, uh, and he told his coach, uh, who's, you know, who asked him, look. I want to, don't, don't you want to win? You know, you, you need to re- run more strategically. If you ran from the back, then you wouldn't, you could draft off of everybody for a while. 
and and you could win. And Steve said, well, of course I want to win, but I don't want to win like that. Winning like that is chicken shit. <laughs> yeah. That's what he called it. And he says, I'm not going to win like that. I'm going to win by, you know, committing everything I've got to that race. Because I'm the toughest and I'm the strongest. He says, I'm just, I'm going to, to, to him, you know, running was an art. Every race was a work of art. He says, I'm going to run it. I'm going to run my race. And I'm going to run for the time. Because if I can't win by giving absolutely everything I have for the entire race, I don't care. I don't want to win. That way. By, you know, some kind of strategy. No, I want to give all my effort from the start to the finish. That's how I'm going to win. And so that, I mean, it's a very courageous way to win. Sure. Because uh, you're at a disadvantage. Right. But it was also, it was just a challenge from the get-go. Right. And every, and you talk, you know, you listen to all the guys that ran with him. He, he was the standard. He was it. And so to line up, to toe the line with him was an extremely intimidating deal because you knew this, he, he's going to go out. He's, he's going to go out fast. Mm-hmm. And if you want to hang with him, that was his challenge. Hang with me, man. I dare you. Because <laughs> yeah. he says, oh, hang with me because i got to kick too. I can kick. You know, the last... Oh I mean, there's gosh. there's some races of his that are just chilling. You know, they just put a shiver up your spine. I love them. So those that's part of my pre-training routine is to watch those three because there is there are points in those videos where you get a you get to see the look in his eye and you know that he's not and he's he's in his place. Yep. He's somewhere else. One of those guys that walks in the room and owns the room and yeah. you know yeah. you so, know what you're up against. There. So try to you know to try to experience his spirit and uh, what he brought, what he brought to the track. He was always I don't think he knew pretty much what he was going to experience, but he was always like all professional. I mean, these high elite athletes, 